This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between. And, of course, we're looking for your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And this next story, well, it's the story of Frank Breyer and the tragedy of the British transport ship Rona in 1943. Despite being the largest loss of U.S. troops at sea due to enemy action in a single incident, the full details of the attack weren't released until 1967. Here's Professor of Political Science at Grove City College, Paul Kengor, to tell the rest of the story. Any veteran of World War II can tell you stories. But for Frank Breyer, his story, one he could never forget, was a terrible one. It began the moment his ship, called the Rona, was sunk. When that ship went down on November 26, 1943, Frank's life changed forever. And very few people beyond the men tossed into the sea ever knew what happened. The HMT Rona was an 8,600-ton British troop ship carrying mostly an American crew to the Far East Theater. It went down the day after Thanksgiving in the Mediterranean off the coast of North Africa, the victim of a German missile. But it was not just any German missile. This was, it seems, the first known successful hit of a vessel by a German rocket-boosted radio remote-controlled glider bomb one of the first true missiles used in combat. It was, in effect, a guided missile, and the Nazis had achieved it first. And the results were immediately destructive. According to the website that today serves as the official online gathering spot for the Rona Survivors Association, more lives were lost on the Rona than on the USS Arizona at Pearl Harbor. Over 1,000 boys, to be exact, lost their lives, and their government kept the entire episode a secret out of fear of information being leaked about the power of the German guided missile. The government feared the effect on the morale of the U.S. military and the wider population. The hit was so devastating, states the Rona Survivors Association, that the U.S. government placed a veil of secrecy upon it. The government, it said, still does not acknowledge this tragedy, and thus most families of the casualties still do not know the fate of their loved ones. It's very sad that only now, long after the few survivors are even fewer, the Rona survivors are attempting to hold reunions, over 70 years after the event. The secrecy was so tight that Frank Breyer's daughter, Mary Jo, spent painstaking years with her dad trying to tug out details and piece together what occurred. Dad was haunted frequently by this, Mary Jo told me, but it was not so much the sinking of the ship, but his personal inability to save many men. Those awful moments of fire remained seared in Frank's brain. As the ship burst into a giant fireball, Frank manned the ropes of a lifeboat packed with injured soldiers. He was ordered to hold the ropes tight and lower the boat with the soldiers into the water below. This was no simple task, especially in a chaotic, panic situation. A lifeboat filled with men isn't light. That was proven quickly as the ropes broke and Frank watched the men below him in his care fall to their death in the sea. 
The image of those men slipping from his hands into the abyss horrified him. But the nightmares, they would come later. In the meantime, Frank too was forced to abandon ship, which submerged within merely an hour. For his own crowded lifeboat, he and five other men seized a floating wooden bench. As the darkness slowly enveloped them with night setting in and with the fear of still more German missiles, Frank led the group in reciting the Lord's Prayer. They say there are no atheists in foxholes. Well, there were none on that wooden bench in the water that night either. Frank and his group with their floating wooden bench took turns. Four of them would float on the bench and two would hang on the ropes. They feared not only Germans, but sharks, and for good reason. Anyone familiar with the horror story that was the USS Indianapolis knows how the sharks slowly but steadily devoured the boys floating in the water over a course of several long days. The crew of six tried to get some sleep while floating in the cold water, but couldn't. They needed to stay focused on holding on to their floating device, the bench. To their great fortune, they were in the water only for about six hours. Just as the sun started to rise, they spied a rescue boat on the horizon. It was a mine sweep that picked them up. They were taken to a facility in Algeria to recover. But for Frank, there was little emotional comfort. All he could think about was the wounded soldiers that he couldn't save. But worst of all, Frank could not share what he was going through. They were ordered not to write or talk about the Rona with their family or even among themselves. The military censorship was so strict that they were threatened with court-martial if they ever disobeyed. And so Frank kept it secret all the way to the grave, tormenting him yearly, monthly, weekly, daily, night after night throughout the rest of his life. Frank Breyer died on January 4th, 2016 at age 92, seven decades after the sinking of the Rona. He now at long last rests in peace. Let us at long last remember him and the entire crew of the Rona. And thanks again to Paul Kengor. And that was his story and his contribution. And Paul is a professor of political science at Grove City College and the author of A Pope and a President, John Paul II, Ronald Reagan, and the extraordinary untold story of the 20th century. And there are so many untold stories of World War II and so many of our nation's battles. We tell them here on Our American Stories. And if you have one yourself, family members, something from your family history, and I don't care if it goes as far back as the Civil War. We had one great lady from Memphis who had sent some Civil War letters to us. And we recorded one, and it was just extraordinary. And she'd kept it as a namesake, as a keepsake for her family heritage and her family lineage. So send them to us. We'll have them recorded by you. Again, that was Paul Kengor, and that is Frank Breyer's story and the story of the Rona and all those forgotten men and unknown men who died and perished on that tragic day. Their stories all here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. And all around this great country, well, in great cities and more and more in suburbs, food trucks are popping up all over the country. A simple way for entrepreneurs to get started before they decide to perhaps pursue a restaurant. Or maybe not, just keep it a food truck. Our favorite little pizza place down the road here in Oxford, Mississippi, Bird and Dan's Pizza. Well, it started as food trucks, and now it's a, it's a restaurant and a family-run restaurant. If you've ever been around Washington, D.C., you can find food trucks and stands on almost every imaginable corner selling almost everything, from hamburgers to falafel. Osiris Hoyle was one of the many in Arlington, Virginia, to run such a stand, but one of few to turn it into a successful restaurant chain called District Taco. Monty Montgomery brings us the story, Here's Osiris. My name is Osiris Hoyle. I'm from Yucatan, Mexico. I pretty much grew up in, in a farm where I had to do a lot of things on my own. When I was, I think, maybe 11 years old, I was selling newspapers, popsicles, flowers on my bicycle, and, and of course, helping my dad farm. And I learned how to cook with my mom. Pretty much every single day, she will wake me up and, and ask me what I wanted to eat. But of course, I had to help her. And not the way that I needed to cook it with her, but I needed to go get the ingredients for her. My, my mom, she's extremely picky, but that's why her food is so delicious. She used to send me to the yard, right? And, um, and I'll pick tomatoes, habaneros, anything that she needed for her meal. And I'll come with tomatoes and, and she'll fill them. And she's like, nope, this is not right. And I'm like, what do you mean it's not? It looks good. And she'll feel it and she's like, feel it. You know, and so soft. And for me, it looked fine. You know, the same thing with limes. She would just see it and, and feel it. And she's like, nope, it's not good. You have to go get more. The standards were so high. And since then, my standards are high. In Mexico, you cannot choose what kind of life you want to live. You know what I mean? I remember that I didn't know I was poor until I met, you know, rich kids. When I went to my friends, probably when I was maybe 14, 13 years old, I realized that they, they had the toys and games or they have a better bathrooms than we did. And then I was like, man, I think you know, we struggle. <laughs> so when I came to United States, you know, I came with a tourist visa and, and I decided to stay when I was 2000. I was working as a dishwasher. You know, I was making minimum wage at that point. And I met my wife at work and she was the waitress and I needed to learn English so I can ask her out, right? So I decided to learn this system and I used to work at this restaurant bar in Denver, Colorado, and even though I was underage, they let me stay at the bar, right? Because I was helping them with the, uh, the cake, you know, and bringing in, and I wasn't drinking, but I, I stay at the bar talking to drunk people. They were the, my best teachers. I remember, you know, I was asking questions like, how do you say this? And, and then I'll write it down. And for some reason, they, I think they felt important, you know what I mean? I don't know, if you're drinking every day at the bar, something's going on, right? So they felt important. I think they, they liked the way that I was asking them questions, and, and they were my best teachers, you know? I mean, the first week I thought, oh, they're going to hate it, and, and no, I was, I was very welcome, and, 
I did it for several years. But it got to the point where at my birthday, Jennifer said, hey, what are you doing today? You wanna go for lunch? And I was like, yeah, I, I canceled everything and, and you know, so I went for it. I was asking her out during that time for two years, three years, I think, and, and she never accepted it for some reason, probably because my English wasn't that good, but I was trying, right? And since then, uh, we got married and now we have three kids and it was great. In 2006, we moved to DC, you know, because things were going well and I was excited to try something new. And I found this construction job that I was paying a lot more than if I was just a, a cook. So that was great, you know, I took the job, even though I didn't have, a, have that much experience, but the construction company saw my potential. They, they saw that I could do more than just be a um, service guy or, so they sent me to school so I can learn how to read blueprints. And for me, I started seeing the potential to be something else than just a cook, you know, in the kitchen something professional where I can be the superintendent of the company and I can run projects. And I felt good, I, everything was going well. You know, I, I did projects where I actually was finishing before schedule, under budget, working my butt off. And I felt like, oh yeah, bonuses were coming. This is great. So we bought our house in 2007. And, and then, you know, we had a, a baby Everything was going so well, but in 2008, I got laid off when the economy was really, really bad. I still remember that moment because it was on a Friday afternoon. I was sweeping the project because we're, everybody just was leaving and, and I like to keep my projects clean for the weekend. And the, um, the actual owner of the company came and he gave me the news. It was very emotional. I started crying. I never, I never been fired before. And you know, I, I asked for my job back. My health insurance was through the company and I just, I felt defeated. I, I felt not being a man anymore. The man that my parents raised, the kid, you know, all these responsibilities, all my hard work. What just happened? I didn't understand it. So I said, look, just, Pay me whatever you want to pay me, okay? Just keep me on the on payroll, but keep my insurance, right? My wife, she's pregnant. We'll, we'll figure it out later. And they just couldn't keep me on, on their payroll. I took my truck, drove away, and I had to park in a parking lot. I was actually crying that moment because how I'm gonna go to my wife right now and tell her that I just lost my job. How I'm gonna do that? I've never been prepared for these moments, right? I have a house, a kid, she's pregnant, and what I'm gonna say? So I went to her job, I said, Jenny, I need to talk to you. And I, I had to say, I got, I got laid off, I got fired. And, and the only thing that she came out of her mouth, she hugged me and she said, don't worry, we'll be okay. Man, that, that, was, that was so powerful, you know? That was so powerful.
for six months, seven months maybe, I was an employee. I was looking for a construction job because I knew, I know how to read blueprints now, but there was nothing available. I was getting depressed, all right? I was getting extremely depressed because I don't have a job, I'm babysitting my son, but in the weekends, I will invite my friends so we can like have some beers and make carne salsadas and the salsas. So my, but my friends, you know, used to say, oh, Cyrus, this is so good. You should bottle this, you know, and, and sell it. And oh my goodness. And, and I'm like, I'll go home and I'll tell my wife, I think we, I think people like my food. We might have something going on here. So and then I was making it for Mark Wallace too. A man who would go on to have a profound impact on Osiris's life. You know, when we move in, I remember that day when he was trying to put his play, play set or for his kids, and I offered my help, and, um, and we became very good friends, and he loved my food. He always said, oh, Cyrus, you should open your restaurant, and there was one day I was drinking beer and eating ceviche with Mark, and he said, hey, Osiris, do you know, all the time when I go to Austin, Texas, there's, um, there's always food trucks, right? And they sell this amazing Mexican food, breakfast tacos, you know, and, and all that. And, and it's so delicious. And, and it's like, he turns around and it's like, Osiris, do, do you want to do it? And I'm like, well, yeah, if, you know, I mean, the food truck is a lot of money, but, you know, but the taco stand is only $25,000. And it's like, well, if you want to do it, I'll give you the money. And I'm like, wait, you want to give me the money? You know, I was like, what person give you, you know, that much money? First of all, I didn't finish my high school, okay? I went home and, and I couldn't believe it, right? I, I talked to my wife about it. And at that point, I didn't have anything else going on. So I went back to Mark and I said, let's do it. Let's do it. And let's do it indeed. And what a story this is so far. When we come back, more from Osiris Hoyle and District Taco and how that all happened here on Our American Stories. Returned with our American stories and the story of Osiris Hoyle, who had just been given a generous gift from his friend Mark Wallace to start his own taco stand and at the lowest point of his life. Here's Osiris. We bought the taco stand, you know, we named it District Taco, and it was born in 2009. And I went straight to Rosling. Roslyn, Virginia, that was the first place we went. And I, I didn't do any research. The only thing I knew, there were big buildings. That's all what I knew. I'm like, oh, there's big buildings. There's a lot of people here, and we're going to be here. But there was Chipotle right next door to me, okay? And there was Baja Fresh, all right? So I was in the middle. Man, I was like, ah, oh, what am I doing here? I'm dead. But, you know, like I said before, I'm, I'm a great sales guy, and 
and I think I can, I can sell tacos and I make pretty good tacos. It started to uh, two people inside the cart and I was the cashier. I had one full runner, one guy that was helping us, you know, and someone else that it was just making sure nothing is missing. The first week, we started making breakfast tacos, you know, in the morning, in the morning, 6 a.m., right? And, and it wasn't working, you know? People around D.C. don't know about breakfast tacos. But in Mexico, we always eat tacos with eggs, you know? So, so be it, you know? And I grew up with it, and, but people around here prefer, you know, uh, a bagel or a donut or, you know, or I don't know, or something else, right, for breakfast not a breakfast tacos. So he said, okay, well, breakfast is not, it's not helping me all the way, you know? Let me, let me start introducing what I'm really good at. For lunch, people don't want to eat breakfast tacos, so I'm gonna start making pollo asado. The other day I was making mole poblano. Every single day I was changing the menu. Just like how my mom would ask me, what do you want to eat today? I would change it, right? And I figured out also, okay, I wanna, I wanna make my, my carne asada. So I pretty much, I welded a, a, a grill that I bought at Home Depot, you know, just like a small grill. So I was grilling, you know, in, in front of people. When people were walking in, into their jobs, to their office, man, we're grilling out there, right? We're grilling our salsas. We had a table where we blended the salsas, you know, we're roasting our tomatoes and everything. It was a party, oh my goodness. Not everything, you know, worked perfectly. For two months, I wasn't making any money because I pretty much was making everything fresh. So I was making my guacamole fresh. I was making my pico de gallo fresh. So I was going to home, restaurant depot every single day and I'll get back, watch the taco stand and drop everything, eat dinner with my family and then cook whatever it takes long time and my refrigerator full of avocados and my wife didn't like that very much but she knew that that was the only option we had here's another thing i used to drink so i can go to sleep so i'll have like a couple beers right one beer and one night i was cooking the beans and i turned the tv on right it was like 8 p.m i fall asleep family was sleeping so around 11 o'clock i don't know about you but when you burn beans. I don't know if you've done this before, but it smells so bad, right? Just the smell is really bad. And, and I woke up and I'm like, oh my goodness, what I've done. What a waste of product, you know, it's money. And I couldn't just burn the house, my family, you know, what I'm doing. And I was pretty angry. But at that moment, you know, I was extremely tired, extremely disappointed, right? And I was just praying because I was like, what I'm doing, I'm just wasting my time here, okay? Um, I almost burned the house, I'm extremely tired, I'm overweight because, you know, it's just, I've been eating a lot, not exercising, working long, long, long hours, and this is, I don't know, this is not working. So I was praying and I said, God, just send me a message because I don't know what else to do. And then my daughter started crying. And I remember, I was like, <laughs> I guess that's the message. I have to continue, you know, for the family, right? So I tie my shoes and get back to work. Mm -hmm. 
location, location, location. It's something realtors say matters in the value of a house or a property. But it also turns out it matters if you own, say, a food truck or a taco stand, a movable location. And it became the key to Osiris's success. So we used to set up so early. And what we used to set up is the ABC Channel 7. We used to get there like 5.50. And, and the weatherman will get out, right? He start telling you about the weather and, but, and then we're cooking bacon, right? Oh man, we're cooking bacon. And I don't know about you, but when you're cooking bacon, oh, it smells so good, right? So he's, he always talk about us. Like at 6 a.m., it's like, he'll turn the cameras, you know, and we're like cooking bacon. We're like saying hi, you know, and that was, oh man, that was great, great times. So things were going so good. There were long lines to order from us. We were like six people in the tacos and working, and we probably served about 200 people. And the actual press start writing about us, and from being laid off to have a taco stand. I think that was a wake-up call that actually it can be done. And then I you know, came to my business partner, Mark Wallace, and I said, hey, Mark, I think we got something going on right here. Let's just open a restaurant. We opened the, the restaurant in 2010 in um, Arlington, Virginia. And from there, you know, we, uh, we bought a lot of equipment from Craigslist, so we pretty much built the restaurants by, by ourselves, but we didn't know what we were doing. I remember reviews online that said, don't think because you came from a taco stand, you're gonna be able to control a restaurant. But those reviews, I remember I was like, okay, just wait, I'm gonna show you. And then um, after a year, we felt like, okay, we have a model. And then we hired for a second store in DC. We hired contractors, okay, to build that store. But then I was like, well, you know, maybe, uh, maybe I should call the guys that, you know, lay me off and see if they want to work with me. So I went and I hired them back. It's funny because I used to be their employee and now I'm their client. Yeah, that's the way how things work out, right? And from there, you know, now we have 12 stores open and over just a little bit over 450 employees, and we're going from there. You know, I think all my life has always been about what other people had and we didn't have, and I think I'm really thankful that I didn't have it all in the beginning. And you've been listening to the story of Osiris Hoyle. And a great job, as always, to Monty Montgomery, our Hillsdale intern a couple of years ago, and now one of our producers. And District Taco is in 20-plus storefronts around Washington, D.C., 450 employees. And my goodness, what a story. And it's every immigrant story is in some ways the same, right? From different places, but everyone can track it in their own families. This story started in Yucatan, Mexico. And boy, when he was young, he didn't have anything. He sold newspapers and flowers on a bike, but learned about standards from his mom. He'd come in with a tomato from the garden and she'd just shake her head. And I know that feeling because my father, my grandfather, was a great cook. And I'd go out to the garden and bring in a tomato and he'd shake his head. And to this day, I do it now to my daughter. Those standards get passed along, folks. And by the way, he said, in Mexico, you can't choose the life you want to lead. And so he came to the United States first as a dishwasher, earning minimum wage, 
learned how to speak English so he could, well, ask his wife out on a date, and built a family, learned a new trade, and in 2008, well, the, the ceiling dropped on the economy and his job working in construction, well, that was over. And in 2008, well, he just had to do something. He'd been laid off and had that moment that, well, no one wants to have. Started that food truck thanks to the generosity of a friend. And look where we are in this story. And it's a story that happens time and again in this great country. Osiris Hoyle's story. District Taco's story. Have one if you're in D.C. Here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on the show, and family is a big part of it. And we understand deeply that families all look different in this country and everywhere else. And today we're listening to an excerpt from Betsy Fassbinder's book titled Filling Her Shoes, a memoir of an inherited family. It's the story of her and her relationship with her stepson, Max. Here's Betsy. A few months before Tom and I were to be married, Max wandered into the dining room of the house we shared. I was sorting through a box of old photographs. Max tossed a bright orange Nerf ball, said nothing, and didn't look at me. His focus was completely on the ball. Hi, bud. Nice moves. No reply. What you doing? he finally asked. Just trying to organize some of my pictures. In my months of living with Tom and Max, I'd learned to let Max come close on his own. If I crowded him or moved too quickly, he'd skitter away, his tolerance for closeness dissipating like so much water vapor. If I was patient, we'd often end up playing, laughing, and recently even snuggling on the couch with a book or a TV show. "'Who's that?' he asked, peeking around my shoulder. "'My mom, when she was young. "'What's she sitting on? "'A paper moon. "'They used to have them at fairs and carnivals. "'People liked to pose for pictures on them. "'That's dumb. "'It doesn't even look like a real moon. "'After the wedding, I suppose she'll be your Grandma Sylvia.' "'He caught the ball and then sidled up beside me, leaning his warm body against my arm. He pressed a dirt-smudged finger on another photograph. Who will that be to me? He was my grandfather, the one who died a few months ago. Max shrugged and resumed his ball-tossing. I already got a grandfather, he said, not unkindly. Lots of kids have two grandpas. I guess my grandfather would have been your great-grandfather. Hmm... Too bad he had to die. I could have used one of those. As I continued my sorting and stacking, I felt a pinch in my chest. Death is a barbed topic, but particularly with a child who lost his mother only two years before. I shuffled past the pictures of dead relatives. The Nerf ball stilled again, and Max propped his elbows on my table, resting his chin on the heels of his upturned palms. "'What about them?' he asked, 
pointing to a picture of my sister and her family. He'd known them his whole life, just as he had known me, played with my niece and nephew regularly, Megan just a year older, Matt two years younger than Max. He'd attended birthday parties and family dinners. But I could see that he was beginning to grasp the change that we were about to undergo. Jim and I will be your aunt and uncle. Megan and Matt will be your cousins. Sweet, he said, looking into my face for the first time since he'd entered the room. His eyes were chocolate pools, his thick, dark hair a sleek, shiny coat that made me want to run my fingers over it. I don't have any boy cousins. And how about him? My brother John? Well, he'll be your uncle. I was especially happy to share my younger brother with Max. John loved kids, and being much like a giant kid himself, had a knack for being silly with them. We sorted stacks of aunts and uncles, cousins and friends. Wow, you have a lot of people, Max sighed. I suppose I do. He began to finger through the stacks, messing up what I'd sorted. My original task no longer mattered. As we neared the bottom of the stack, a honey-thick warmth began to fill me. Perhaps my family was to be the unexpected dowry I'd bring to this little boy who'd already lost so much. Whoa! he exclaimed, laughing at my third-grade picture, the one where my hair had been expanded to new dimensions by an especially humid Indiana day. At moments like those, Max was just a little boy, buoyant with energy, easy with a laugh. He played Legos and watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and tossed balls. At other times, when he was still or thought no one was looking, it seemed that the earth's pull was just a little stronger where he stood, tugging the corners of his mouth downward, making his eyes appear years older than the number of his birthdays would imply. Just as I was about to put the last of the pictures into the box, Max pressed a finger once more to a face. And who will this be to me? Beneath his finger I could see the edges of my own face. I was suddenly flooded with a heart swell for which I had no name. This child of the man I loved was becoming my son. We'd have family Christmas cards and school art stuck with magnets to the fridge. I'd make goodie bags at birthday parties, snap pictures at graduations. All these things I'd never allowed myself to want, thinking that perhaps my own history had left me too wounded to allow myself children of my own. I was becoming a mother, but without the benefit of a growing belly or a baby shower to prepare me. I should know the answer to his simple question. I should know how to say just the right, wise, magical thing. But I didn't. So I offered the therapist's cop-out question. Well, what do you think? Max shrugged, then looked away. And I knew it was my job to field this one. Jumbled words bobbed to the surface of my mind like those triangle-shaped answers floating in the blue waters of a magic eight-ball. Finally, the image rose to the surface. I'll be your second mom, I said. Oh. I'm sorry that your first mom died. 
I liked her a lot. Silence floated between us. Then Max leaned against me, his chin still in his palms. What should I call you? he asked, not looking at me. I'd known him his whole life, and he'd called me Betsy all that time. My heart pounded against the cage of my ribs. My stomach turned over. Mama, I wanted to cry. I'll be your mama, and you'll be my son. I resisted. You can call me Mom or Mama. You can also call me Betsy if you'd rather. Whatever feels okay for you. He stood there a minute, and I waited, thinking I'd get a pronouncement of my new title. What's for dinner? he asked, picking up his ball. Burgers. Sweet, he said, tossing the ball as he walked out of the room. At our wedding a few months later, Tom and I said our vows to one another. Then Max was invited to stand beside us, and I made vows to Max. I promised to step into the shoes his mother had been forced to leave behind, and to be the best mother I could be. I promised to help him remember her. After the wedding, for the next few days, Max tried on a new title for me. Can we go bowling? he'd ask. And he'd follow the question by mouthing the word, Mom. The word was silent. It seemed he was trying it on, seeing how it felt in his mouth. My hopes floated like a pink helium balloon. And then, like a thousand hornets, guilt attacked that balloon, piercing it until it lost its air and sank. It felt wrong to take such pleasure in seeing his little plump lips form that singular syllable. After all, this new son of mine was an inheritance that I'd not have if he and Tom hadn't sustained such an enormous loss. I felt small, and smaller still when old habits resumed, and Betsy was once again my only title. I tucked this shameful disappointment away, telling no one. Weeks later, as I drove him home from school, Max pulled out a baggie full of Cheez-Its from his Ninja Turtle lunchbox. He munched away, licking each finger of its orange dust. With his focus deep inside the near-empty snack bag, he suddenly said, I notice I don't call you Mom. I breathed to calm my voice. I noticed that. One last cracker, then four fingers to lick. When I say Betsy, I mean Mom. I swallowed past the dry rock that had formed in my throat. Thanks, I said. That's nice to know. He looked out the window. Moms die, you know. I think maybe it's safer if you're just Betsy. We could have had a long talk about magical thinking and death and how nothing he could say or not say could cause me to die or could have caused his mother to die. But this just didn't seem like the time for all of that. I willed tears away, not wanting to overwhelm him. He had so much to carry. Thanks, bud. I appreciate you telling me. Those big chocolate eyes found mine. I waited. Hey, Betsy. Yeah, I said, delighted with the new sound of my old name. What's for dinner?
And what a beautifully told story. Again, that's Betsy Fassbinder, her book, Filling Her Shoes, a memoir of an inherited family. And my goodness, that moment when she just is, well, she just can't take that maybe this boy won't call her mom, but yet she knows what the boy's been through. And it just, well, you're in her shoes and his in this beautifully told story. And 16% of all American families are mixed ones. And we're aware of that fact, and that's why we bring you this story. Betsy Fassbinder's story, her stepson Max's story, here on Our American Stories. Let's do that Irving Berlin song, okay? I love piano. I love to hear this fella play. I love the fine way he plays a Steinway. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Tony Bennett. And by the way, you're listening to the late and great Ralph Sharon on keyboards. And listening to Bennett and Sharon do their thing over the last, well, many decades they played together, if you've ever seen them together. It's seeing just, well, musical perfection. And our next story is about a brand name we all know, speaking of pianos, Steinway. But a man you don't know, Henry Steinway. Because on this day in history, in 1871, Henry Steinway passed. And all of our histories, by the way, are brought to us by Hillsdale College, the best place and the finest place to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. In the end, the story we're about to hear is a story about resiliency and a man's search for freedom. Here's Greg Hengler. As guests dine on succulent roasted fowl and mouth-watering marinated oysters, washing their palates with ice-cold champagne, piano music is in the air. The occasion is the opening of the new Steinway factory in New York on April 1st, 1860. A correspondent from a local newspaper declares, it is conceded that the Steinway piano in make Tone, sweetness, precision, and durability is the most perfect instrument of that class to be had anywhere in the world. The road to victory began 63 years earlier in Wolfshagen, a small forest hamlet nestled in the slopes of the Upper Hartz Mountains in northwest Germany, where Heinrich Steinweg, founder of Steinway & Sons, is born. Church records reveal that the Steinwigs were master charcoal burners. They lived in the woods and, like most charcoal burners, were regarded with deep suspicion by townspeople who rarely saw them. Steinwig's childhood is marked by many tragedies and twists of fate. At the age of eight, during a harsh winter, his mother and most of his siblings die from exposure. He is orphaned until his father and brothers once thought to have been killed in action, returned from the Napoleonic Wars and claim him. 
Then, at 15, he is orphaned once again, penniless and living on the streets. He seeks refuge in the German army. Two years later, he is fighting against Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo on June 18, 1815. Family legend has it that when an advance is made on Napoleon, the charge is signaled by a lone bugler, Heinrich Steinweg. According to this tale, he is awarded a bronze medal for bugling in the face of the enemy. When not heading off to battle, he is in the barracks making mandolins and other instruments and occasionally striking up a tune with the military band. After six years of military service, Steinweg begins an apprenticeship with his church's organ builder. He is also introduced to the piano through his Jewish friend, Karl Brand. Steinweg learns to build a piano by copying Brands. As he changes the pipes of church organs, he becomes interested in notes, octaves, and chords. Thirsting for knowledge, he appears every Friday evening at his church to listen to the organist rehearse for Sunday services. Every German craftsman in 1835 has to belong to a guild, or what we would call a union. Since Steinweg doesn't have a master craftsman diploma as an instrument maker, he's not allowed to build pianos officially, so he becomes a cabinet maker. But he's still very much interested in building instruments. Here's master piano builder Chris Mana. He has restored, uh, I think, many instruments. He has seen them, he has compared them, and he has made his own uh, concept, his own piano, at that time for him, who was better than the instruments he has seen around him. Apart from being skilled in working with wood and special tools, building a keyboard instrument requires musicality and a complex knowledge of mathematics and physics. But Steinweg relies on intelligence, and intuition. The cabinet maker decides to start building forte pianos and courts a woman he falls madly in love with, Juliana Tima, the daughter of a well-established glove maker. For the wedding, Steinweg wants to impress Juliana with a very unusual gift. It sounds wonderful. In 1835, he gives his bride his first square piano that he designs himself. Here's Heinrich Steinweg's great-great-grandson, Miles Chapin. That is consistent a little bit with this image of a businessman. I mean, if, if your first product is very complex and technically complicated, you don't want to sell it because it might break, in which case your reputation is ruined before it's even been made. So for him to take his first piano and give it to his wife, I think that's wonderful. Here, you, you play this, honey, and tell me if it works. Newly wed and raring to go, Heinrich Steinweg wants to build not only good pianos, but the best pianos in the world. With meticulousness and passion, he begins building his first grand piano in 1836, which he later sells to the Duke of Brunswick for 3,000 marks. This piano is later named the Kitchen Piano and is now on display at the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art along with the square piano he gave to his wife. I believe he started out as a cabinet maker. But if you think about it from a businessman's point of view, with the amount of labor and the amount of time it takes to make one thing that's this big, okay? If this thing is a chest of drawers, you can sell it for X. 
But if this thing that you're making is a piano and takes longer to make, you can sell it for five times X, six, ten times X, so that his product could be more valuable to him and his profit margins would be greater. I don't think he was driven musically at all. I don't think he was driven creatively at all. I think he was purely, my take is a purely a businessman, and he had a product that was a higher value product, and he would get a higher profit from it. Easier to transport, easier to build at home. He could have one at a time going, uh, and that was why he went into it. And when we come back, more on the remarkable life of Henry Steinway, who died on this day in history in 1871. And we continue here on Our American Stories with the life story of Henry Steinway. And let's return to Greg Hengler and to where we last left off. Heinrich Steinweg's first grand piano is an enormous success. To meet the growing demand, Steinweg decides to train his young boys. Even his five-year-old has to help out in the workshop. His musically talented daughter, Doretta, is only allowed to watch. The crafts are strictly for men. With the help of his sons, Steinweg can make 10 to 12 instruments a year. Then in 1848, riots engulf most of Europe because of political instability and economic uncertainty, spawning movements towards socialism. Heinrich's second son, Charles, is on the front lines in the fight for the people's sovereignty against an absolutist prince and the civil liberties for the Christian middle class. The Socialist Revolution fails to produce a redistribution of wealth, land, or power, but it does paralyze businesses throughout Europe, thereby encouraging businessmen like Heinrich Steinweg to consider leaving. Fearing reprisals for their son, Charles leaves Germany and sails to New York City in 1849, where he is to find a safe haven for both himself and for the Steinweg piano business. In June 1849, Charles lands in New York, the heart of professional music making in America and of America's piano industry. The other major piano manufacturing cities are Boston, Baltimore, and Philadelphia, all centers for German immigrants. Pianos have only been in America since the Revolution. Most of them brought in from shipwrecks by pirates as part of their booty. The rest were imported by John Jacob Astor, the German millionaire fur trader who occasionally bartered furs for pianos. Six weeks after his arrival, Charles writes to his family for the first time praising the, quote, progressive spirit of America, unquote. Beloved parents, brothers, and sisters, New York seems to be an Eldorado for keyboard instruments. I soon found employment with a piano manufacturer. It's a pretty well-paying job, the growth of wealth in the United States promises great opportunities for piano manufacturers. You'll hardly believe it, but in nearly every household there's a piano. Family music is part of daily life here. Be courageous and do not hesitate for too long. Frustrated by an assortment of government regulation, interference, and unjust taxes, tens of thousands of Germans leave their homeland and flee to America. Here again, 
is Heinrich Steinweg's great-great-grandson, Miles Chapin. There was a time of great political upheaval in Germany, uh, in Europe, all through Europe. Um, it was not a climate conducive to business. And the Steinways, if anything, were businessmen. And Heinrich, if anything, was a businessman. And he lived in this small town in the Hartz Mountain region, Zazen. And he made his pianos one by one at home. But to sell them, he had to take them places. And to take them places, he had to cross borders. And when he crossed borders, there were tariffs, there were added costs that weren't going into his pocket. And he was ambitious. I think he just decided rationally to leave Germany to set up a shop in New York City. On May 28, 1850, the Steinwigs, along with their three daughters and three sons, board the first German ocean liner in Hamburg. On her maiden voyage, the Steinwigs reached New York City in just 30 days. Their eldest son, Theodore, stays in Germany to run the rest of the company. When the Steinwigs arrive, they face no restrictions, no questions, no Ellis Island, and no Statue of Liberty. They quickly move into a small rented apartment on Hester Street in the middle of a quarter that's known as Little Germany. The Steinwigs' apartment is certainly very different from their spacious home back in Germany. With more than 600,000 German immigrants, New York is a German enclave. By 1860, one out of every four New Yorkers is German-born. Only Berlin and Vienna have more German citizens. These Germans brought with them a classical music culture that didn't exist in America. Here's Kathleen Hulser from the New York Historical Society speaking to us on St. Mark's Place, just between 2nd and 3rd Avenues. On this street, you could see how busy and productive Germans were when they got to America. There would be pretzel sellers along this street, people selling cabbage, women selling clothes. And the Germans were really good at founding their own groups. They liked to get together and do things together. So they had Turnverein, a club for men. They had their beer gardens where the whole family would go. And they had things like a gun club, which you can see right on this street. It's still here. The gun club, the Schützengesellschaft, is something that was not just about shooting targets, it was also about men enjoying each other's company and drinking beer. The Steinwigs don't go into business right away. Instead, they decide to work for others until they get their feet on the ground and learn some English and New York methods. Heinrich and his sons select the best New York piano makers to work for so they can learn the latest and finest techniques. But three years after their arrival, an economic depression hits New York. Heinrich's sons are unemployed, and he's earning a very low day's pay as an employed piano maker. In these times of instability, Heinrich quits his job and opens his own piano workshop with his sons. They no longer have very much to lose, but with this move, they now have the potential to achieve a lot. To help with sales, business friends advised the Steinwigs to Americanize their name. And so, Heinrich Steinwig becomes Henry Steinway. A humble attic on Varick Street, just below Canal Street, on the west side of Manhattan, becomes their very first company headquarters. 
On March 5th, 1853, with only a verbal contract and a capital investment of just $6,000, Steinway & Sons is founded. It is a good time to be in the piano business. Musical life in America is flourishing, and the piano is at the center of the increasing interest in music. Most piano pupils are women, other instruments being seen as detracting from feminine attractiveness. The cello demands that a woman spread her legs, and the harp ruins her posture. But at the piano, she can sit demurely with her feet together. Even courtship increasingly takes place at the keyboard. From the beginning, the women were there to support the men, assist the men, cook the food for, clean up after the men, but it was a man's business. Uh, Doretta, one of the daughters of the original Steinways, she gave piano lessons, but I don't think she ever worked for the company. I don't think she was ever a salaried uh, employee of Steinway & Sons. She probably owned a few shares in the company herself, but she didn't work there. Now, my mother was the Steinway in the family, and she had four older brothers who she watched one by one go off and work at the family business. So naturally, when she came of age, she asked her father, when do I start in the family business? And the story goes that he brought her to the piano and said, come here, open the piano, read me what it says in the piano. Steinway and Sons, please, don't embarrass me. There's no women at Steinway and Sons. Even my secretary is a man. Close the lid of the piano. Forget it. Here's Andy Horbachevsky, vice president of Steinway & Sons, New York. What was amazing to me is that in the 10 years from um, 1853 to 1860, when they started the factory, the very big factory um, on, on Park Avenue here, they went from scratch to building the most pian grand pianos of any other piano manufacturers. And I think that's a credit to not only the excellent design and craftsmanship, but they were tremendous, I think, businessmen and marketers and salesmen. And what a story this is, the Steinwigs becoming the Steinways. It's a classic immigrant story. There were no restrictions here in America. There were no questions. And so they parked it down on Hester Street, and then in the end, Varick Street, and these are streets you know if you know that particular part of New York City. And when we come back, we're going to continue with the story of Henry Steinway and this remarkable family business. He died on this day in history in 1871. And again, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And I urge you all to go to hillsdale.edu to check out all of their free and online content teaching there is remarkable. Their Constitution 101 class, let's just say I learned more watching that class than I did at three years at the University of Virginia Law School about our own Constitution. Henry Steinway, The Family Story, continues here on Our American Story. ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for the podcast.
And we continue here with our American stories and with the story of Henry Steinway. Let's return to Greg Hengler and pick up where we left off. Each Steinway & Sons grand piano is handcrafted and comprises 12,000 individual parts assembled by as many as 450 people. The process takes over a year to complete. Although it's always the same construction plans and materials, no two pianos ever sound alike. Steinway Grand Pianos all have their own individual sound and personality. Here's Lang Lang, who is considered by many to be one of the finest concert pianists of all time. Lang compares the best pianos to great actors for their ability to convey extremes of emotion and attitude. It was the flamboyant pianism in a Tom and Jerry cartoon, he says, that originally drew him to the instrument. I had a great privilege to go to um, both uh, Steinway factories in New York uh, and in Hamburg. And uh, um, it's a big monster, right? I mean, it's huge. But when they start working, almost like you found that they're, they're working on a Swiss watch. It's so detailed, everything's so precise, like they're making a violin or making some smaller item, not like, you know, you wouldn't imagine when you go to the factory, that's the factory of a producing uh, a piano, um, such a big monster, you know, and, and that precise work really transferred uh, to, um, to the sound. There is a unique person in Steinway's factory, the one who makes the final tuning for all pianos before delivery. With an expert touch, he can quickly discern the questionable keys and makes chalk marks. Then, he patiently adjusts the hammers to achieve the perfect string strokes. Because of his acute gift, he is known as Steinway's ear. Walter Boot is the heart and soul of Steinway and Sons, and has been working in the piano factory in New York for over 50 years. Not a single Steinway piano leaves the building until it satisfies his absolute hearing. Here's Walter Boot, Andy Horbachevsky, and Miles Chapin. My job is to even out the tone. I get the piano, the piano is all done, ready to go to somebody's house. And I, like, fine-tune it. I listen to it, I play it, I make it all the sound even, so I'm happy with it. When I'm happy with it, I know you're going to be happy with it. I love working with Chinway. Chinway did my whole life. I'm the oldest working person in the factory right now. They call me Uncle Wally because I worked here so long. When the piano come here, it looked like a piano. When it leaves, it sounds like a piano. So I put the, the love into the piano. Mozart, Rachmaninoff. We go through multiple tunings, multiple regulations, multiple voicings. So it is a, a really a circle of refinement. We're constantly trying to get that last ounce of, of tone out of it. We will baby that hammer 
We will pull out as much as we can. In the early days, Henry Jr. was the mastermind. Um, C.F. Theodore Steinway was back in Germany, and he was still making pianos, and he was working on his pianos, and there's a correspondence back and forth between uh, Brunswick and New York, and they were trying out different ideas. But Henry Jr. was really the one here who was, uh, who was uh, getting the patents and really making the advances from an engineering perspective. If there was any single patent that made the most difference, it would be the overstrung one-piece cast iron frame. That's what differentiated the Steinway piano in its day. It was the first piano company to bring a grand piano with a one-piece cast iron frame to market successfully. They first showed it in 1867 in Paris, and pretty much you can measure the history of the piano from the time running up to that point and the time running away from that point. Because today you can't buy a piano that doesn't have a one-piece cast iron overstrung frame. But before that time, there were none. And they were the first, and they had a patent on it. Together with his sons, Henry Steinway's credo is the same as ever, to build the best pianos in the world. You see pictures of him, and there's only a couple of them, and he was ramrod straight, and his fists jammed into his pocket, and his set of his jaw just like this. He was very determined, determined to make a successful company, to make a success of his life in the United States, to give his children a better life than he had. I think it's that classic American story. The Steinway's future depends first on skill, then on national recognition to boost sales. The company founder has an ingenious idea. He realizes that the renowned pianists and composers of the time are the ideal advertisers for Steinway and Sons. So he signs the acclaimed artists exclusively to Steinway. They are not bashful. They're not afraid to tell us if something is not 100% with the piano itself. I think we, we are very lucky to have this very good feedback information coming back to us from, from this va very valuable part of our customer base, the concert artist. Here's Steinway historian Cornelia Pullman. People said that if people like that play on them, then this instrument must be of high quality. They asked for recommendations from the aristocracy, such as the Queen of Spain, the Sultan of Turkey, the King of Sweden, and used these recommendations for advertising purposes too. They then built the Steinway Hall. Here in the Steinway Hall is where concerts took place. When you wanted to go to the concert hall, you had to walk through the exhibition rooms. And so, naturally, they did even more advertising for the pianos with that. The New York Times wrote at the time, the Steinways can be proud that they own the most magnificent piano business in the whole world. Today, over 95% of the world's finest pianists prefer Steinway pianos for their concerts. At 67, Henry Steinway has fulfilled all his dreams, reputation, wealth, and fame. But then, tragedy strikes. On March 11, 1865, Henry Jr. dies of consumption at the age of just 35. Then, just days later, Henry's other son, Charles, dies of typhoid fever while visiting his brother in Germany. It must have been devastating to Henry Steinway. I mean, to lose not only one son, but two sons, 
I mean, of course, that was an era where people died more easily. You didn't live as long and children died. But it was very, very difficult for him, especially you know, being an immigrant. I mean, his whole family, he brought with him. They were here. And when it's diminished by two, well, he did have the one son back in Germany, but when it's diminished the number that are in New York by two, that was when they wanted to bring C.F. Theodore over to you know, strengthen the family. It is William's job now to keep the family business running. He writes to his brother Theodore in Germany that they desperately need him in New York. Theodore leaves his successful business in Germany, and three weeks later he arrives in New York. Brothers William and Theodore form the perfect company management. Theodore invents groundbreaking features for grand piano mechanisms, and William knows how to sell them. Their success starts spiraling. And what a story, and it's so hard to comprehend losing two sons in such a short period of time, especially with a family business, one with real specific knowledge and drive. When we come back, we'll continue with the story of Henry Steinway, who died on this day in history in 1871. Get more at OurAmericanStories.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. return to the final installment of this remarkable life story, this quintessential American story. And we heard in the beginning, fleeing Germany because of so many restrictions and coming to America to just do, well, do what the Steinways do, make a great product. And now, Greg Hengler with the final part of the story of Henry Steinway. Here again is Henry Steinway's great-great-grandson, Miles Chapin. The skill set, the way that the talents of the sons meshed is really what made the difference. Because on the one hand, you had C.F. Theodore Steinway engineering the piano differently. But then on the other hand, you had his brother, William Steinway, who was changing the way you sold pianos, changing the marketing of pianos. And so when you had a company that had a demonstrably finer product, coupled with uh, a CEO, a corporate officer, who knew how to sell that product and was innovative in the ways he was selling that product, boom, it came together and it just made a, a, a sum greater than the sum of the parts. Then, in 1863, those parts were attacked by the Manhattan Workers' Union strikes, disrupting Steinway piano production. When the Furniture Makers Union decided to target the piano industry, Steinway was the biggest, had the most prominent name, and they decided to target Steinway and Sons. I think William Steinway was tremendously surprised by that. Surprised, insulted, nonplussed, and he was shocked. Uh, His workers say he treated them as if they were his children. I mean, he had a very patronizing, in the best sense of the word, attitude towards his workers. He felt that he was their patron. He was their father figure. Um, 
at that time, he had a country house out here in Bowery Bay in Queens. And I think he had a revelation one day. He said, wait a minute, New York's over there. I have a house here. Here's all this land. The water, the ocean is right there. I can bring my warm materials in here. I can move my factory here. And I think he deliberately set about doing that, buying the acreage out here, um, moving the company out piece by piece, digging the tunnel underneath the East River. You know, the Steinway Tunnel was the first tunnel under the East River. I took it this morning when I took the subway into Manhattan. The number seven train goes through the William Steinway Tunnel. To get the workers out of the social unrest and union riots in Manhattan, Steinway has his Steinway Village built in Astoria, Queens. And he built gymnasiums, and libraries, churches, housing for his workers, and a lot of it is still there. Um, you can see on the streets, you know, the streets have been renamed, you know, 30th Avenue, 31st Street, but you can go to some of the housing that was the factory housing, and you can see chiseled on stone on the side of the building, Albertstrasse, Friedrichstrasse, and that was the names that William Steinway had for his original city. Then, in 1880, Theodore returns to Germany in order to open and operate a second factory in Hamburg. Since then, they've split the global market into two parts. New York supplies North and South America, and Hamburg, the rest of the world. Here again is Andy Horbachevsky, Vice President of Steinway & Sons New York. We're one company, but we do manufacture in two plants, here in New York and one in Hamburg, Germany. And there are subtle differences. Um, certainly uh, a little in terms of just the, the finish and the high gloss versus the satin look. But there are also, also some uh, tonal differences in terms of how the tone, uh, uh, tone is perceived. Um, from our perspective as a global company, uh, we like the choice. There are artists that prefer the New York instrument in, in Europe and vice versa, that in, in, in North America here, some prefer the Hamburg. Uh, to us, I, we, we think that offering a choice is good, and um, we will not change that in the future. When the United States enters into World War II, Steinway and Sons are no longer able to build pianos. Pianos were not deemed strategic materials during World War II in the United States. However, some of the things that go into making the piano were deemed strategic materials. Copper, for instance. Uh, all the copper in the United States was going into the war effort, so the piano makers were not allowed to use copper. The wood that they had at the factory, some of it was used for rifle stocks, things like that. The government at one point was suggesting that Steinway make coffins. I think my grandfather, who had four sons in the war, decided he didn't want to make coffins. They did make glider airplanes for the war effort. They did make about 2,000 pianos for the war effort, small olive drab government issue piano, the ODGI piano, which I love. Came in a little packing crate, had some music, a set of tuning tools. They shipped them all over the world. The 150-year-old company produces about 2,000 handmade nine-foot concert grand pianos a year, compared with the approximately 100 a day by other companies. These magnificent instruments do not come cheap. One is shown in the Steinway showroom in New York on West 57th Street with a price tag of $103,000. No wonder a prospective buyer is very particular in choosing a specific piano. Each handmade instrument has its own personality. 
The limited production hinges a lot on the brand's severe selection standards for timber. After all, 85% of the Steinway piano is made from wood. Precious timbers from all over the world are neatly stacked in Steinway's warehouses, and there they spend two years in their natural drying process before the next step. Space between them ensures good air circulation and the pliability of wood. After the drying process, only 50 to 60% pass the rigorous quality checks to become piano parts. As the soundboard is the central part of a piano, the design and the selection of the materials for it must be meticulous. The artisans select the finest North American spruce. Spruce has the desired regular grain to ensure a smooth resonance. Only 5 to 10% of the timber from one tree can be used for the handmade soundboard by the experienced artisans. Australian concert pianist Piers Lane has specially flown to Hamburg to choose three concert grands for his hometown, Sydney. Which works as well. There's a, a singing sound with quality. Now, it'd be interesting to compare that with the one down the end, say. Piers is attended to by Steinway & Son sales consultant, Garrett Glonner, who jots down notes while following Piers around a brightly lit showroom filled with Steinway grand pianos. But we start with the same thing now. don't feel it's got the same fineness of quality as the other one in the tone, but let's try some Mozart. I don't feel it's got the same depth of character as the other one. The other one's got more core to the sound. I want to compare that now with the first one. After a sound test marathon of six and a half hours, the pianist makes his selections. It's interesting because it makes me play it in a slightly different way, this piano. How do you feel, Garrett? The middle one is a kind of a in mix between. of both. It's true. But yeah. uh, if I should use the term noblesse, yes. I would find it most in this Broken one because this one. there's yeah. some extra glints on, yeah. on each note. And I think yeah. it has a beautiful cantabile. I like the balance of the piano. Exactly. It feels, you know, even across the whole range. But at the same time, it has the classical um, transparency as well in the texture. Periodically, there has been in the history of the piano, uh, the death bell has been summoned or been struck. You know what happened in the 1920s when player pianos started and when radio came on? People said, oh, well, nobody will listen to pianos anymore. After World War II, with hi-fi and television, people said, oh, people won't have pianos anymore. In the 50s, with electric pianos and Hammond organs, oh, no, people will never need pianos anymore. Didn't happen then. Hasn't happened now, you know? And still people are, are, are improving tinkering, as you say, a little bit with the piano, just trying to find small improvements to it, but there's nothing that can replace it. Nothing can replace the sound of a grand piano, well played.
After 75 years, in 1871, an unusual life journey comes to an end. A journey that took the orphan from the Hartz Mountains in Germany to the highest highs of music in America. Courage, perseverance, and family were his strengths. After 150 plus years of turmoil, feuds, depressions, wars, competition from the Far East, nothing has silenced the Steinway sound. Even if what Steinway is now selling is its past rather than any technical innovation. A New York Times reporter referred to the Steinway factory as a resilient treasure in a city that wonders whether it has lost its soul. With his Steinway and Sons piano, Henry Steinway has made himself immortal. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. And it's startling to hear that 95% of all concert pianists still use Steinway. They innovated, well, in every respect, from how to make a piano to how to sell a piano, all of it. From one man, Henry Steinway, who died on this day in history in 1871. His story, here on Our American Stories. It's nine o'clock on a Saturday. A regular crowd shuffles.